Good morning. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning. I consider it both an honor and I'm humbled by it. And I hope to repay you by sharing God's word with you. I'm praying that it will come with wisdom and with power, with the Holy Spirit and great conviction. So if you have your Bibles, get them and turn or scroll to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. About 15 years ago, I was pacing my office in inner city Houston. Had a big decision. I felt certain that God was calling me to take my wife and at that time three children and move to Scotland. I was confident at one point, but the lack of funds and support that was coming in caused significant doubt. Could I really afford to take them? Am I really going to take my wife and children and move them to a place that I've never been before? What if I can't provide for them? I didn't know what to do. And I was tempted to ask for a sign. I grew up in a fundamental missionary Baptist church that strongly discouraged ever asking God for a sign. On the one hand, it was endorsed as a sign of uh, unbelief, of lack of faith. At, at worst, it could be that this is putting the Lord your God to the test. But these were drastic times. You ever been there before where you just don't know what to do? In drastic times called for other denominational measures. And so against my upbringing, don't tell my mom, I asked God for a sign. I don't remember how much longer it was after that before I heard a knock at the back door. Since I was serving at an inner city church in Houston, we would have countless transients come in and knock on that door. One of my job uh, was to go and to help them, take them to our food pantry and provide beans and rice. When I heard the knock, I was annoyed. I got up from my desk and I went and opened up the door. And as I expected, once I saw his dirty face and tattered clothes, I knew that this person was there for food. I'm embarrassed, ashamed to tell you that I was frustrated. I wanted this guy to go away. I had more important things to focus on. God's will for my life. What I was going to do, hearing a word from him. So because I was annoyed, I just said, follow me without saying anything else. I motioned to the food pantry. We went in there. I gave him the cans of beans, bag of rice. He looked at me and he said, thank you. Now, when he said, thank you, I was taken aback because he had a funny accent. Now for my four years that I'd served at this church, I'd heard numerous accents, but never one like this. I was so stunned that I said, sir, where are you from? With a glint in his eye and a toothy grin, he said, well, son, I'm from Edinburgh, Scotland. I was so excited that I gave him like three other bags of rice, another box of, can, another can of, a box of, can of beans. And now I hear that story it reminds me of the story in Acts chapter 16, where Paul see, hears a sign, sees a sign of a man from Macedonia. If you have that Acts chapter 16, let's look at, start in verse six. If you remember, Paul is on his second missionary journey at this time. Uh, the Acts, uh, Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 has already happened. And now Paul and Barnabas split ways. Barnabas takes John Mark and Paul picks up his ringer, Silas. And Paul and Silas, they go back to Lystra and Derby. This is the place that Paul was stoned before and left for dead. But Paul gets back up and goes back in. On his second missionary journey, he goes back to Lystra and Derby. And there he picks up another partner, Timothy. And we get to verse 6, we see that Paul and his companions, they were wandering around Phrygia and 
Galatia because the Holy Spirit had forbidden them, not allowed them to go into the province of Asia. They went down to Mysia, trying to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not let them enter into it. And so they went past Mysia down to Troas. In the middle of the night, all of a sudden, Paul had a vision of a certain man from Macedonia. And he said, come to Macedonia, come to Macedonia, come to Macedonia and help us. After that vision, we immediately thought that God was calling us to go preach the gospel to Macedonia. So we gathered up our stuff and went that way. I love the story of Paul's vision of this man of Macedonia. I I love the fact that the disciples are wandering around seemingly aimlessly, not knowing where to go. I don't know how the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit of Jesus kept them from going into Asia or to the the province of Bithynia. Uh, Again, I I struggle with ADD, uh, and you mix the ADD with an overactive imagination. And my picture is of uh, Paul trying to go into Asia and of Gandalf and Lord of the Rings. You shall not pass. Um, I don't think that was it, but I'd like to think that that's the case. I don't know if the spirit was holding them by the coattails, letting, not letting them go in. If they were running into a wall, it probably was something else. But here they don't really know where to go until finally God gives them this sign, this vision of a man of Macedonia. Now, New Testament scholars have so much fun trying to figure out who this man in Macedonia is. Your English translation probably just says man of Macedonia. In the original text, it probably is best translated as a certain man of Macedonia. Now, the speculations on who exactly this man is go from the ludicrous to the sublime. One of my favorites is that the man of Macedonia is a vision of the most popular Macedonian in the history of the world, a guy named Alex, Alexander the Great. If you remember Alexander the Great, his goal was to go beyond cultural boundaries, to tear down walls of prejudice and racism and unite the world under one Macedonian Greek kingdom. Very similar to Paul's in that Paul is going to try to tear down walls of racism, go beyond cultures and prejudice to to unite everyone under not the kingdom of Greece, but the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And some of you are like, "Uh, Dotson, that seems like a stretch. Yeah, I think so. But one, unusual, one, one funny little incident is that Josephus, uh, who lived around the time of Paul, it was a historian, and one of the famous stories about Alexander the Great is that one day he didn't have an uh, idea where he was supposed to be going. His next strategy, he wasn't sure. And he ended up at a place named Troas, and he was scratching his head. In the middle of the night, Alexander the Great, according to Josephus, has a vision of a man, a Jewish high priest who tells him where to go. Possibly Alexander the Great. Maybe not. One of my other favorites is that this is actually Luke, the author of Acts, working himself into the story. Luke is actually from Macedonia. We'll find out a little bit later that he's from the city of Philippi. And when he comes and talks about Philippi, he says, I want you guys to know that Philippi, it is the most important city of the province of Macedonia. It wasn't. But Luke seems to have some city pride. But you also look, if you're following along, if you look at verses 9 and 10, you'll see that as soon as Paul has this vision, there's a shift in pronouns. Paul move, uh, Luke moves from using him and they 
for the very first time in Acts to us and we. So some scholars think that before Alfred Hitchcock, before Stan Lee, uh, here we have Luke writing himself into the story. And that Luke is the man of Macedonia saying, come to Macedonia. Henceforth, throughout Acts, we're going to have no longer the he and they, but it's going to be the us and the we. I like both of those options, but I think probably the best option is that Luke leaves it obscure. He doesn't tell us because he's a master storyteller. And a master storyteller doesn't tell the punchline. Instead, it draws upon maneuvers that increases your curiosity, suspense, that lead to a surprise. And we see this wouldn't be the very first time that Luke does this, especially when it starts at the beginning of missions. Luke likes to begin with this curiosity, suspense, and surprise. We see it even at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry in Luke chapter five. If you remember, Jesus goes to Nazareth to his uh, home synagogue and they give him the scroll. He unwraps it and he finds it to Isaiah and says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because it's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to preach freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind and to declare to the world the year of Jubilee. But then all of a sudden in Luke 5, something very curious happens. The people move from praising him to getting very angry. They grab Jesus. They take him onto the top of a cliff outside of the city to throw him down to his death. Curiosity, suspense. But then there's surprise. All of a sudden, as Jesus is at the edge of the cliff, he walks through the crowd, through the people, and makes his way. Luke doesn't tell us how Jesus got away from the crowd. I like to think it was some great circus move, greatest showman. And they got on the other side of them. It's like, it's everything you ever want. It's everything you ever need. But but we see not only in Jesus' ministry, but we also see it throughout Acts. Luke likes to give us this strategic, deliberate obscuring. So that as we move forward in the story, our mind is still kind of back. By giving us this man of Macedonia, it leads to this suspense Inquiring minds want to know, who is this certain man of Macedonia? But Luke has a surprise for us, a rather big surprise. Because when Paul gets to Macedonia, he doesn't meet a man of Macedonia. Instead, he meets a woman from Thyatira. Follow along with me in your text, beginning in verse 11. Then setting sail from Troas, we went down straight to Samothrace. From there, we went to Neapolis, and from Neapolis, we made our way down to Philippi, a Roman colony, a Roman province that was the chief city of the region of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we got up and we went to the city gate, went outside the city down by the river to see if there was someone praying. We found a group of women women there, and we sat down and began to teach them. Now, there was a certain woman, same uh, text that we had earlier, certain man. There was a certain woman by the name of Lydia from Thyatara, who was a dealer in purple dye. She was a God-fearer. And when she heard this, the Lord opened up her heart so that she received the message. And she and her household believed and were baptized. And then she came to us and said, if you really believe that I'm a sincere believer, then you'll come to my house and stay with me. And so she persuaded us. 
So do you see what Luke is doing here? Come to Macedonia, the man of Macedonia. And then all of a sudden, Paul gets to Macedonia and he meets not a man, but a woman. Why would Luke try to surprise us like this? Well, one thing that we see about Luke, uh, more than any other New Testament writer, more than any other evangelist, Luke wants us to understand the importance of women in the church. He starts his gospel out not with Joseph, but instead he starts it out with Mary and Elizabeth. We see that at the very beginning, Luke wants us to understand that, uh, that at Pentecost is not the spirit of God just coming on the sons. It's coming on the sons and the daughters, the male servants and the female servants. Uh, we see that Luke is going to continue to remind us. And what he's doing is he's really pushing against the culture there. Because in the culture, women were marginalized. In the culture of the Roman and first century, uh, women were at best second-rate citizens. So maybe that here Luke is giving us this idea, we're expecting to find some really important man and God says, nah, I give you a, a very important woman instead. Now scholars tell us that Lydia likely was a single mom, that those in her household were, that were saved and were baptized were likely her children. She likely was not only a single mom, but a widow. And so we see that uh, here uh, we have God's heart for widows, for, for single moms, for those who are marginalized in society. Luke is reminding us that in the kingdom of God, it's not about your chromosomes, whether you have XX or XY. It's about your calling. It's not about the gender of your body. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit. Lydia becomes the patroness of the church. She becomes the provider for the church. And this is Paul's crown church. If you know the book of Philippians, Paul says, you are my boast. You are my crown. And at the center of that crown, critical to it, is the woman Lydia. And maybe we can excuse it. Like, okay, yeah, Lydia is a very important woman. She's an entrepreneur. Uh, she is uh, one who's making her way. But Luke has another surprise for us. Because the next person we meet, we think, all right, now we're going to find the man in Macedonia. But we find instead another woman. But this one's not a dealer in purple dye. Instead, she's demon-possessed. Look at verse 16. Once as we were on our way to pray, uh, to prayer, a slave girl met us who had the spirit of prediction, of fortune-telling. And her owners made a whole lot of money on her ability to predict the future. And she began to follow us and cry out, behold, these men are servants of the most high God. Behold, these men are servants of the most high God. Behold, these men are servants of the most high God who are showing you the way to be saved. Finally, after several days, Paul got annoyed and he turned around and said, girl, in the name of Jesus, be quiet. Sorry, that's my translation. I use that with my children all the time. In the name of Jesus, shh. Paul says, in the name of Jesus Christ, spirit come out of her. And immediately it was gone. She was set free. Here we see that Paul, that Luke gives us not a picture of a man of Macedonia, but instead a slave girl in Macedonia. Sure, Lydia was marginalized, but here we have one who is oppressed. Sure, Lydia was maybe a widow, but she still had her family. But now we have one who is all alone, who's addicted with this demonic spirit in her life. 
Again, I think Paul, Luke is giving us this surprise. He's leading us on to find out who this man of uh, Macedonia is because he's wanting us to say that there's, some, there's people just as important as the man of Macedonia. And it's not just the marginalized Lydia, but here we have this oppressed, this beleaguered slave girl. God cares about her too. It takes us back again to what we saw in Luke chapter five, where the gospel is to proclaim freedom to those who are captives. Finally, I think Luke may, be give us, may give us a bit of resolution. With the curiosity, suspense, and surprise, um, there's often, finally, we got it. And finally, we meet the man of Macedonia. But I think there's probably still another ace in the hole because we don't meet this man of Macedonia down by the river where people are praying. We don't meet this man of Macedonia on the throne of Philippi, but instead we meet him in prison. If you're following along, we see that uh, next once her owners realize that they can't make money, money, money off of her, they become infuriated. And they grab Paul and Silas and they march them to the city center in front of the magistrates. And they begin to speak to the authorities. These men are Jews who are setting the up, turning the city upside down because they are preaching customs that are unlawful for us Romans. As they begin to speak these things, the crowd begin to also turn against Paul and Cyrus, Silas. So finally, the magistrates had them stripped down and beaten with rods. Having beaten them, now the magistrates turns to a man of Macedonia, a jailer, and say, whatever you do, keep them under safe guard. Keep your eye on them. So the Philippian jailer, he takes Paul and Silas. He puts them in the inner cell, the most secure part of the cell, and he fastens their feet in stocks. The last time Paul, in the middle of the night, we saw him, he had a vision of man of Macedonia. Now, in the middle of the night, having been beaten with rods, Paul and Silas are praying and they're singing. Hosanna, na, na, na. We know that you have a plana, na, na, na. Textual variant there. And all of a sudden, there's a great shaking. And an earthquake caused the prison doors to open up and the chains to fall down from the hands and the feet of the prisoners. The Philippian jailer, realizing what had happened, he pulls out his sword, getting ready to fall on it. And all of a sudden, Paul says, stop, stop, stop. Do not harm yourself. Chill. That escalated quickly. We're all still here. The jailer couldn't believe it. He turned on the lights and he rushed in and he saw all of the prisoners still sitting there and he cried out. Tell me, he fell down before Paul and Silas trembling and says, tell me what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe on the name of the Lord your Jesus, on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved. Amen? Finally, we get the resolution. We find the man in Macedonia whose burning question is, what must I do to be saved? Come to Macedonia. Help us. Paul finally made it. And on his way, he met Lydia, the founder, the patroness of the church. He met this demon-possessed girl who once she was set free, according to Luke's economy, the way that Luke writes, once a person is healed or saved, they're incorporated into the body of Christ. And he gets this Philippian jailer, just like Lydia and her household who believed and were saved, now the Philippian jailer and his household believe and 
are saved. Curiosity, suspense, surprise, resolution. We're not after an academic, intellectual, stirring understanding of this text. We have to ask that question. So what does this mean for us? How does this apply to Grace Point Church? How does this apply to you? Well, of the numerous applications, I want to pull out three. And the first one is this. Perhaps some of you can relate to the apostles when they're in Bithynia and Messias and outside of Asia. Maybe you too just feel like you've been wandering around aimlessly. You're frustrated and you don't know where to go. Every time you try to go this way, God slams the door in your face. You try to go to this way and the Spirit of God keeps you from going there. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a location. Maybe you're just kind of at a point where you're at a standstill. You just feel paralyzed. You feel suspended. But the application that we see here that Luke gives us is that our God is faithful to guide and provide for his people. We just have to trust him and be patient. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 with respect to sin and temptation. No temptation has seized you except what is common to every person. But you need to understand God is faithful. And when you go through that temptation, he will provide the way out. For your temptation, it may be just to give up. It may to just shake your fists at God. But here we see that in this temptation, be faith and understand God is faithful. And he will provide the way when it's his time to provide the way. He'll provide the job. He'll provide that answer. Now, I can't tell you that the guy from Edinburgh was a sign from heaven, uh, especially in relationship to here in Acts chapter 16. But I can tell you this. The Bible tells us that we shouldn't ask for sign as much as we ask for wisdom. I love what James, the brother of Jesus, says in chapter 1. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, just ask God. Because God is faithful and he will freely and generously give you the wisdom that you need. Maybe we need to add to that prayer, not just wisdom, but also patience until God gives us that answer. A week later, I had another stranger take me out to eat at the Cracker Barrel, a person I never met before. I didn't ask for money, but he said, I heard about what you were doing, and I want you to know that my wife and I want to support you and your family to move to Scotland. And we'll pledge our support, not for one year, but for three. God will provide. God will guide. We just got to trust him. Don't get disheartened when the door shuts. Don't get disheartened when God says, you shall not pass. Because he has something else for you. A second application, and this is a very important one, because often when Luke is writing, his goal is not to apply this individually as he is talking about the church. Acts is giving us this reminder of who we are as a church and what we're doing here. And one of these great reminders is that God is not calling us to the rich and the powerful. He's calling us to the poor and the powerless. He's calling us to the marginalized. He's calling us to the oppressed. He's calling us to single moms and widows and those who are on the the, the verge of suicide. To those who are crying out, what must I do to be saved? We often forget We get distracted. That's who's important in God's economy. That's who's important in the kingdom of God for the broken. I love what Jesus says in the gospels. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It is the sick. My oldest daughter, uh, for some reason when she was younger, she was 
afraid, had a phobia of band-aids of all things, of band-aids. And she wouldn't even call them band-aids. She had her own word for them, boo-boo dades. And if we ever were to bring out a boo-boo dade, she would be afraid. But one time she hurt her finger and she thought it was so bad that she had to get past her fear. And she came and said, hey, dad, can you put a boo-boo date on my finger? I was just so excited that she was open for that, that I raced and got our little uh, Dora the Explorer boo-boo date and I put it on her finger. Well, uh, about an hour later, she came back to me and said, hey, dad, can I have another boo-boo date? I was like, oh, there was something wrong with yours? And she said, no, but I didn't want to tell you, but you put it on the wrong finger. <laughs> I feel like often, especially in the American church, We're putting the Band-Aid on the wrong finger. God's calling us to take the gospel, the Band-Aid, the healing power of Jesus Christ to the broken, to the marginalized, the oppressed, to those who are slaves, to those who are addicts, to those who are crying out, what must I do to be saved? We need to remember that. Let me ask you, who is your man in Macedonia? Who is it that's calling you as a church, saying, come and help us foster children? Come and help us addicts. Come and help our third world country who's never heard the gospel. Who is your man of Macedonia? And then finally, this morning, maybe your point of application is not with the apostles at all. Maybe you relate more to Lydia, to the demon-possessed girl, the Philippian jailer. Maybe you feel like the one that's been crying out for help. Maybe you feel like the one that's been ignored and neglected. Maybe you feel like the one that your world is falling apart before your very eyes. I want you to know if that's you, and there is a sign, and it's not a man of Macedonia that is your sign this morning. It's a man of Nazareth. It's a person of Jesus Christ. My youngest son is adopted. He was abandoned by his biological mom in the hospital uh, at birth. He doesn't know this story. But ever since, he has this seemingly irrational fear that he's going to be abandoned. To the point that if we leave the room, he starts panicking, thinking that we're leaving him. We get out of the car and to go and unbuckle him out of his car seat. He has a, a panic attack and begins to cry, don't leave me, don't leave me, don't leave me. We have to tell him, buddy, we will never leave you. We've never left you in the car seat. We're not going to leave you in the car seat. This past summer, we were at a youth camp in Smackover, Arkansas, and he got out of his bed and came and got in the bed with my wife and me. We snuggled up, and all of a sudden, he looked at us and said, Mom and Dad, please don't ever leave me. Fought back tears. My wife grabbed him and cuddled him and said, Son, you will never be left because we will never leave you. But no matter how often we tell him that, It's often where he's trying to to do things to make us think that he's not worthless, that he's important. He'll draw a picture and say, look, dad, look look at my photo. And I'm like, buddy, that's so awesome. He's like, hey, look, dad, look how good I can can dance. I'm like, buddy, you're a great dancer. Hey, hey, dad, 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 look, 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 watch me sing. And I'm like, buddy, yeah, I love watching you sing. But I feel like every time he asks me this, it's saying, daddy, validate me. Daddy, I'm important. Don't leave me. I just wish I could just take a piece of my heart and just let him feel it and understand that I love him so much that I'd never leave him. And he is so, so valuable to me. 
If he only knew that at night when he falls asleep, I'll come in and I'll pray over him and the love for him that fills my heart. But you know, there's some of you that maybe you're not adopted, but you can relate to that. You have this fear that everyone's going to leave you. You have this feeling that you're worthless, that you're unimportant. But I want you guys to know tonight, you don't have to say to the world, look at me, look how strong I am. Look at me, look how rich I am. Look at me, how smart I am. Look at me, how many degrees I have. Look at me, how rich I am. Because God is saying, hey, you are my child. You are my Lydia. You are the, the young girl. You are the Philippian jailer. I see you and I will never abandon you. I did not spare my own son. How much more will I give you all things? You need to understand that you are so worthy that you are my poema, you are my craftsmanship. And I allowed my son to die on a cross for you so that through that cross, nothing will separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Neither height nor depth nor principalities nor angels nor demons. Nothing, nothing, nothing. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes. I just want you to ask the Lord what in this message is specifically for you. What is it that he's going and putting his finger on your heart about? For some, maybe you're at this point where you're just kind of paralyzed about fear for the future. You don't know where God is leading you. You don't know what the next step is. And maybe this morning your sign is God just saying, trust me, pray for wisdom and patience. I've never failed you and I never will. For some of you, it's a reminder as a church to redouble your efforts, to put the Band-Aid on the right finger, that your call is to declare, your call is the same call as Jesus Christ, to declare the gospel to the poor, to the captives, to the sick, to those who need to hear Jubilee. Brothers, maybe you relate to my son Caspian. You just feel like any day, your spouse is going to leave you. Your children are going to leave you. You're going to be all alone. You feel worthless. You're trying to overcompensate in this world. And you're a man of Macedonia as a man of Nazareth who walked, on, walked up to the hill of Calvary and gave his life for you. Father, we pray that your word will come with wisdom, with power, with Holy Spirit and great conviction. That lives that are broken can be healed. Those that are in despair will be given hope those without purpose will be given meaning. And God, we pray that you'll take this word to embolden Grace Point, to take the gospel to those who are unreached, to those that are unloved, to those that are on the margin, that are beleaguered and oppressed. To Jesus Christ's name, the one name under heaven that we pray. Amen.